Jeremiah 24 and 25, and I've asked Carde to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 24, and then chapter 25, verses 15 through 17. Just going to do a couple select readings this morning out of these two chapters. Jeremiah chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs, the very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will guard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. They shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations, make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Amen. In 1973, Yogi Berra and his baseball team were, were pretty far behind, and uh, Berra believed that they would still win the pennant, and that was when he said the famous words that now kind of roll off the American tongue, which is, uh, now I'm going to forget it. <laughs> How about that? Here we go. It ain't over. Till it's over. It ain't over till it's over. Yeah, never mind. When your illustrations fail. Now, his point was, uh, you're, you're telling me that we're going to lose, we're not going to win the, the division championship. It ain't over till it's over. Uh, the, the story's not over yet. And they ended up winning the division championship. I want to speak to you this morning from this passage under the title, The Cup. The reason I want to call it The Cup is from, uh, I'm coming from Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 17, which is the second passage that Carday just read there. This cup of God's wrath. Let me just show it to you here once again in verse 15 of chapter 25, in case you missed it. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, He said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Now, I want to follow this cup this morning. 
And I want to recognize that this cup is a cup that references the judgment of God. Now here's the reality is we can kind of get discouraged when we study the judgment of God. It can come across as sort of bleak, right? When we talk about God's wrath. But the story ain't over. We've got to follow this cup. We've got to see where this cup goes. We've got to ask the question, who is it that drinks this cup for us? Now today, there are people who just outright deny that God has any wrath. Which, I don't know how we can get around, let's say, the whole book of Jeremiah. If we deny that God has wrath for sin. God has wrath. There are churches that don't want to talk about it. It's amazing if you think about it how much of a theme the wrath of God is and judgment of God throughout the Scriptures, yet it's one of the least, things, uh, the least uh, common themes in a lot of our churches. While I study for sermons, whenever I'm on a certain theme, I might do some Google searching on that theme to look for some illustrations. You know how hard it is to find illustrations on the wrath of God? What does that tell you? It tells you that not many people are preaching about the wrath of God, yet it is such an important theme throughout the Scriptures. It is needed news for us. Because we don't know that there is grace. We don't know that something is good unless we unless we understand that God has wrath. That there is judgment for sin. Now the story here begins in the year 597. This is during the first phase of the deportation of the Israelites from out of Israel into the land of Babylon. Around 597, Nebuchadnezzar made his first attack. And it was at that time that King Jeconiah surrendered, as Jeremiah required, to Babylon and Jeconiah along with, in verse tw- uh, chapter 24, along with all of sort of the brightest and the best of Israel went to Babylon. Now, this begins the worst 10 years of Jeremiah's life. Because what happened was, let's back up a second. Remember, a sign of godliness during this time was surrendering to Babylon. Do you remember that? Jeremiah said, like, so, this is God's judgment. If you want to be godly, surrender to God's judgment. Don't fight against Babylon. Well, there were those who stayed behind, a.k.a. King Zedekiah and his cronies, who were going to fight against Babylon. Now, Jeremiah is left in Israel. He wasn't taken away in the first de- deportation. This leaves Jeremiah with those who are ungodly, those who did not surrender, with Zedekiah and everybody who's against him. This begins, you're going to see this, the worst 10 years of Jeremiah's life. Now, contrary to what Zedekiah and all those guys think, it's the exiles who are now the godly ones. The exiles are going to be, from this point on in Jeremiah, those who are godly, hanging on to, trusting in the promise of God. As this is what Jeremiah shows us in chapter 24. As the story begins, Jeremiah, shortly after this first deportation, he's walking through the marketplace and he sees two baskets of figs. And he's just staring at those figs. 
And God says, Jeremiah, what are you looking at? And Jeremiah says, well, I'm, uh, two baskets of figs. And God says, what do you see? Jeremiah says, well, one basket looks really good. They're ripe. They're ready to eat. The other basket looks really bad. Uh, they are spoiled and they're unedible. God uses that to tell Jeremiah something that he's going to pass on. God says, that basket of good figs, that's how I'm going to treat the exiles, those who have just been taken away. And the, the, the other basket is how I'm going to treat those who resist what I'm doing, a.k.a. Zedekiah. Now, in verses 8 through 14, or I'm sorry, verses 4 through 7, what we see here is God's treatment of those who are, have gone into exile, God's promise for them. And I'm not going to get into it yet. I want to save it for a little, a little bit later. We're going to get there. But let me just say this. It is really, really good. And it is completely by God's sovereign grace. Chapter 25 begins. And chapter 25, by the way, is the halfway point for the book of Jeremiah. We are halfway through. I will finish preaching this book by the time I die, I think. I won't die of old age, at least, by the time this book is finished. Now, let me say this, too, just a little quick side note here. It gets a lot better after chapter 25. Up until chapter 25, it's pretty much all death. Like one theologian put it, he said, there are islands of hope in the first 25 chapters, but they are surrounded by oceans of death. As I was planning out this series through Jeremiah, and I'm working through every sermon, trying to figure out where we're going to go, what I realized was like sermon one was going to be on judgment. Sermon two, judgment. Sermon three, judgment. Sermon four, judgment, right? That's basically, if you've been tracking with the garden for any amount of time while we've been in Jeremiah, what you know is that every Sunday we've been talking about what? Judgment. Yeah, welcome to the garden church, everybody. David Scott asked me yesterday if, if I'm going to go to Lamentations next. <laughs> I should, I should, just for the fun of it. Let's just continue judgment for five years here at the Garden Church. <laughs> but it's important though, isn't it? It's important. Let's, let's talk about the importance of it, but not just the importance of it, but a better question. How do we escape the judgment of God? If knowing about his wrath is important, let's ask this question, how do we escape his wrath? Somebody ask me that question. Somebody ask, come on. How do we escape it? Let me show you from this passage. First, know that his wrath is coming. And secondly, let's explore where we find some hope. All right? So first, know that his wrath is coming. Before I get into this, let me just say this. My dad, he was like one of those, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking, looking for? Um, precise, uh, not precise, methodological, um, very uh, careful in the way that he would spank us. You guys know, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, it's one thing to have a parent who just like, boom, you get it right when you do something bad. 
It's horrifying to have a parent who is very, very, uh, he's following like a strategy. <laughs> Methodical, that's a good word, there we go. Um, sometimes words just don't come to me. So, you know, he, he was the kind of disciplinarian who would give you a time, like, we're going to meet in two minutes <laughs> in my bedroom. Like, I have to go to him as if I'm going into a meeting. The door would be closed. He's very calm, very, very, very quiet. Uh, and then he would sit and he would talk to me and he would, he would first want to hear whether or not I understand what's happening. <laughs> and if I can explain to him exactly what I did wrong. This happened on a daily basis, by the way, growing up, all right? Like, I would celebrate days, where maybe two or three days in a row where I didn't get a, get a spanking. And uh, my, my brother would come to me and say, have you not been spanked today? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and, uh, but here's the great thing about the way my dad disciplined me was I learned that I had time. I had some time to put some extra pants on. <laughs> I'm telling you, I would put on four or five pairs of shorts and then a pair of sweatpants and then I'd pull my jeans up over top of that before I go knock on his door for my, for my spanking. One time I, put a, I stuffed a, a, a pillow in there. He caught that one. I remember one time I literally had five pairs of pants on and he spanked me so hard and I didn't feel it and I thought it was so funny, I started laughing. He was like, pull them down. I was like, one at a time, five different... Here's the thing, though. I thought, and often I, I kind of did, actually, escape the discipline of my father. What we see, though, with God's discipline is that there is no escaping it. There's no time to get ready for it. There's no way you can kind of wiggle your way around it and kind of get out of the, 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 this cup of God's wrath that is coming. First, nobody can fight against it. And this was Zedekiah's problem. Zedekiah thought he could fight against God's wrath. He picks up swords to fight against Babylon and to say, no, it's not coming. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refuse what the Lord has coming to me. Whereas Jeconiah surrenders. And by the way, Jeconiah's name is in the genealogy of Jesus. Because he recognized there is no getting out of what God is doing as he pours out this cup of wine. In verses 8 through 14 of chapter 24, we see the horror that is coming to Zedekiah as a result of his resistance of God's wrath. Chapter 25 begins with basically a summary of Jeremiah's message and his ministry. Uh, we see right there in verses 5 through 7, basically he's saying, this is what I and all the prophets have been saying, turn to God and stay in the land disobey God, continue to rebel against God, and His discipline is coming, and you are going to lose the land. Look at verse 9 in particular. He says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. For, Bab uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, look what he says about Nebuchadnezzar. He says, My servant... And I will, I, will, I will bring them against this land and the inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations and I will devote them to destruction. He says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is my servant. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. He probably didn't even know the name Yahweh. 
So how is Nebuchadnezzar the servant of God? Well, he's not a servant of God in the sense of bringing worship to God. He's a servant of God's wrath. God is using Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to bring destruction against Israel, and therefore it cannot be fought against. Like, there are some people out there who I honestly believe are going to stand before God on Judgment Day and argue with Him about whether or not they should be judged. There are some people who I think are going to, to be so angry with God that, that God has a, has a problem with them. People who resist God's wrath. I'm going to figure out how to stuff a pillow into my pants so I don't get <laughs> the judgment that's coming. No, it, ain't, it doesn't work like that. There's no way around it. His wrath is coming whether you like it or not. And that is your biggest problem. The fact that your sin has incurred the wrath of God is your biggest problem. Like, your being cute doesn't solve your biggest problem before God. Listen, doing well in the workplace, being successful, making money, doesn't solve your biggest problem. Having a family and, and, and getting things together and maybe buying a house, that doesn't solve your biggest problem that you've got. Good deeds, doing good things, doesn't solve your biggest problem. We could go out and, and end all injustice, theoretically, in the world. Demolish racism and, and bring e equality to those who are suffering. But even that wouldn't solve our biggest problem that we've got. The biggest problem that we've got is the fact that our sin has incurred the judgment of God and His wrath is coming and we cannot fight against it. Secondly, no one is exempt. What we see here indicted, who we see indicted, are both the religious and the non-religious. There are some people who, uh, in, in their fight against God, they just simply won't take responsibility for their sin. Which, by the way, is kind of all of us, isn't it? Like, we are, as human beings, fallen human beings, we are great at making excuses. Now, I'm speaking of myself here as well. Very few people take responsibility for their actions. We're just so quick to make excuses for our problems and our actions. Like, honestly, if you walk around, you try to figure out what's going on in people's lives and what's going on in their, uh, what, are, what are their issues, and you talk to 100 people, you're not going to find anybody to be guilty. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, somebody else is the problem for everybody. Someone once said, if you want to study human nature, study their excuses. It's not my fault. I forgot. You didn't explain it to me that way. Well, nobody told me that. Well, I was going to do it later. I didn't know. I didn't know it was that important to you. We are so good at not taking responsibility for, my, for, for ourselves. Did you just point at me? Did you just point at me? <laughs> yeah. We're good at it. It's not my fault. 
Look, nobody's exempt from God's wrath. When we stand before God, if we stand in our own flesh without any help, listen, I'm telling you, there will be no excuse. Look at who is indicted here. In verse 15, we see there is a cup. There's a cup in the Lord's hand. This cup is the symbol of God's wrath. Habakkuk 2.26 talks about the cup of wrath. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, talks about God's judgment as being a cup that is going to be poured out. I'm telling you, follow this cup. This cup is real. And here in chapter 15, or chapter 25, verses 15 through 17, what we see is that there is this cup. The nations are going to drink it. They're going to stagger and be crazed because of the sword that he is sending upon them. And Jeremiah says, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made the nations drink it. Who drinks it? Well, first we see here in verse 18, Jerusalem, a.k.a. the religious. This isn't just the nations outside of us, the irreligious. He says it's the religious that are recipients of God's wrath. These are the people who are uh, recipients of the covenant. These are people who have the law. Like These are people who have the temple of God, and God's cup of wrath is being poured out on them. This means nobody is exempt. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter whether or not you were faithful to your spouse for 50 years. Well, you could live like a nun, all right? Just completely disconnected from the world. You've never known a man. You're not exempt. It's not our good deeds. It's not our parents' faith. It's not the fact that we go to church on Sunday. Nobody's exempt. Not the religious, nor, we go on, not the irreligious. The irreligious are not exempt either. This is a big point that needs to be made. Just because you disagree with this stuff doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with it one day. You see what I'm saying? As, as he goes on, he says, Jerusalem, then he goes on to the nations. He says, verse 19, he says, Egypt, Uz, east of Babylon, the area of the Philistines, in verse 20. Verse 22, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Edom, Moab, Tyre, and Sidon, all the kings across the coastland. Verse 23 and 24, the Arabian Peninsula, countries such as Dedan, Tima, Buz, Elam, Media. And in case he missed anybody in that list, in verse 26 he says, oh, and all the kings of the kingdoms of the world. Meaning Everybody. Everybody. Nobody is exempt. Not the religious nor the irreligious. In verse 27, he says they are going to drink this. And the image here of, of this wine being drunk is that of staggering, violent convulsions, final destruction. Nobody's exempt. 
I was talking to a non-Christian one time and I, I asked him, I said, if you were to stand before God and God were to say like, you know, hey, this is reality, like what are you going to do about this? What would you say to him? And, uh, and what they said w- was, well, I would tell him that's not my truth. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's true for you, God. But that doesn't guide my life. I've lived a different path. And I've lived according to my path and the light that I have. You're not exempt. You can't just simply say, oh, well, that's, that's Christianity over there, but uh, I don't believe it. Or I don't like that part of Christianity, so I'm going to embrace this part of Christianity, but that, not that part of Christianity. Well, friends, that still applies to you. It doesn't matter if you reject it. Like these people, all of these nations mentioned, they don't know Yahweh. They've never been given the law. They don't know anything about the covenant, but they're responsible. Isn't that interesting? Why? It's because all through the scriptures what we see is that God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all people. And all people have rejected him. And as a result of all people's sin, all people have come under his wrath and are recipients of this cup that we're talking about here. Nobody can refuse it. Look at verse 17. It says, I made them drink. Verse 28, he says, you must drink it. In verse 29, he says, I will not let anybody go unpunished. In verses 30 through 38, God is presented as a lion who's prowling, roaring across the globe, devouring those who have rejected him. In verse 31, let me just read verse 31 to you. He says, the clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword. What is the cup of wrath? You're actually very familiar with a cup of wrath. You all have a cup of wrath, don't you? Like, we all have a cup of wrath that foams up, that bubbles up, that overflows. A cup of wrath that we force others to drink, our own cup of wrath. You know what I'm talking about? You guys are looking at me like you don't have any cup of wrath. Well, I'll be honest, I do. I remember a number of years ago, this was probably going on 10 years ago, I was going through an angry, an angry phase of life. Have you ever been through an angry phase? Yeah, Tony has. When have you ever been angry, Tony? I've never seen Tony angry in my life. What'd you say? <laughs> so I was going through an angry phase, and it was particularly uh, uh, hitting me on the road what you might call road rage. So I'm driving down Utah Street down by the market and literally, I had the fam- my family in the car, uh, literally a bus cut me off the road. Now if you know anything about Baltimore City bus drivers, do we have any Baltimore City bus drivers here? All right, good. Good, so I can talk freely, right? Although where's Carday at? Carday wants to be a Baltimore City bus driver. Yeah, all right, Cardi, I'm talking to you now. So um, a, a Baltimore City bus driver, he cut me off with his bus. Now, he probably didn't see me. Let's give him some grace. But I lost it. 
And so I, got, and so I pulled up in front of him and jammed on, jammed on my brakes and stopped. Let me remind you, I have my two little girls and my wife in the car. And I roll my window and I lean out like this. And I look at him and I'm like, you know, I, I don't think I was swearing, but it was like, I was, you know, livid. And I'm like yelling at him like, like yo, you cut me off, whatever. Hanging out the window. And he goes, <laughs> and I was like, no, you come here. You get out of your bus and you come here. I'm not, and so we're both doing this. And then I'm, and then I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I going to fight a bus driver? <laughs> What's going on right now? And so I kind of like, Get back in the car, roll the windows up, and like the three ladies in the car are just like quiet, staring at me like, what just happened? And I'm like, I don't know what just happened. Like my cup of wrath just happened. You see what I'm saying? Like we know, we know the cup of wrath. Because it bubbles up in us, and for us, it comes out of sinful places. For us, it is, it is sinfully motivated. It often has to do with our pride being hurt. It has to do with just wanting to get even, retribution, and it, it foams up, and it bubbles over, and it destroys, and it hurts. Now, we are familiar with our cup of wrath. Do we understand God's cup of wrath? If you know anything about yours, all right, it's that forceful, yet it's pure. It's holy. It is righteous. And it is true wrath that rightfully is to be poured out on people like you and I. So how do we have hope where do we see hope in this story? A, a young boy came home late for dinner. He had been warned numerous times by his parents to not come home late, and he was late. And when he got home, he sat down, and in his place was a plate with a little piece of bread on it and a cup of water. And he sits down to receive the the punishment for being late. And just before he eats, his dad takes the bread from the boy and replaces it with his own full plate of food. Where do we see hope in this story? Where do we see hope? Let me show you. The brightest words of hope are in verses 4 through 7. In the middle of judgment, in the middle of such horror, we see some of the brightest words in the Bible in verses 4 through 7. And let me just say this. What we see is, is our hope is not in escaping God, but our hope is in God. And here's why this is important. Boy coming home late for dinner his hope is not in escaping his father. It's not in continuing to run and just never come home. His hope is actually in the grace of his father. Our hope is not in escaping God's wrath. 
Our hope is not continuing to run away from God. Our hope is not finding a corner where God doesn't see us and getting ourselves together before we go back to Him. Our hope is in God Himself. Our hope is in God's grace. It's in His own character. And that's what we see here in verses 4 through 7. First, God chooses to save. Look at verse 5. He says, I will regard them as good. Who's he regarding as good? These exiles, those who have gone off now into Babylon. He says, I will regard them as good. Question, are they actually good? No. He doesn't say they're actually good. He says what? I will regard them, chapter 24, verse 5, I will regard them as good. This is justification. This is God declaring us righteous. God says to these people who were previously under His wrath, they were objects of His wrath, He says, I am now, by my own grace, going to choose to save them through regarding them as good. Secondly, God provides a Savior. In verses 5 through 7, look at these active verbs as they relate to God. He says, I will regard them as good. Verse 6, I will set my eyes on them. I will bring them back. I will build them up. I will plant them. Verse 7, I will give them a heart. Meaning God, in His own sovereign grace, is doing something for them that they need. A.K.A. providing a Savior. What do they need? Throughout Jeremiah, what has been the main problem in the book? Pop quiz? Our heart, exactly. The, the theme throughout Jeremiah, the theme has been the fact that they've got a bad heart. And they need a whole heart. Uh, or they need to come, come to God with their whole heart. Part of the covenant, actually, demands that we come to God with our whole heart. Well, how can they when they have a bad heart? How can they? Uh, the, the problem is they look good on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside. When we were in Nidri, uh, Scotland, this past November, a team of us went. We were hanging out there with, uh, uh, walking through Nidri with Mez, the pastor of the church there, in Nidri, it's a poor community in Scotland, and Mez was sort of complaining about the fake progress that they made around Nidri, this poor community. And he said, you see these houses over here? Those houses are like, they look really nice. They tore down the old houses that looked ugly, and they've put up these new houses that look really nice. He says, but the problem is, if you go inside the house, it's the same old mess that's always been there. Yo, isn't that the same with us? Like, we can clean up the outside. We can look good. We can make some money. We can dress well. We can say the right thing. We can come across as churchy and religious. But if you go inside the house, it's the same old mess that's always been there. Why? It's because we don't have a new heart. It's because the very core of us that has led us to sin is still the same core. 
What we need is a new heart. And that's what we see God giving his people here as he provides for them. Meaning God provides exactly what God requires. This deportation of Israel, this exile that they're facing, this promise that they've been given is all paving the way for Jesus Christ to come. This is all paving the way for a Savior. Friends, the story is not over. That's why we can't just stay here in Jeremiah, but we've got to always push forward because there's a twist at the end of the story. There's a twist. The story's not over. The ending is actually really good. Remember I told you, follow the cup? Where does the cup go? Who drinks the cup? Well, Jesus, when He comes in in the Gospels, He says to His disciples, He asks this question, He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus then goes to the cross, and before He gets there, He's in the garden praying. You know this story? And while Jesus is in the garden, He says, my Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done. Where does the cup go? This is Jesus who came into this world not to be glorified in the world, by the world, in this life, but He came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who drank this cup. He is the one who staggered on our behalf. Jesus is the one who went into violent convulsions on our behalf. Jesus is the one who fell on our behalf. The Bible says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Every day, we we force other people to drink our cup of wrath. Every day, we offer that cup to others. Listen, the cup of God's wrath, Jesus drank for you. So you don't have to taste any of it. And He gives us, then, a new heart. And He declares us righteous. That's the good news of Jeremiah chapter 24 and 25. Family, we were exiles. We were in the greatest exile of all. Let me ask you this question. How does an exile get set free? How does a captive go free? You, you were chained to your sin. Like I know some of your stories. You were in chains, weren't you? You were enslaved to your sin. How does somebody who's chained to their sin be called <clears throat> righteous? How does somebody who has has fallen, how do they stand up? How does somebody who who, who, who was so deep into the, 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 the wickedness of their former life walk out of that and then stand before God and hear God say, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. How does an object of God's mercy become a child of God? Well, it's because the story isn't over. The story hasn't ended yet, and there's a twist at the end, and it is a good ending. Family, Jesus took your guilt. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. Follow the cup, and what you see is that He took it and drank it, and He drank all of it, so you don't have to taste none of it. There is no wrath of God left for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are feeling the weight of your sin. Do you know how the story ends? You're feeling the guilt of your sin. Do you think the story's over? You're feeling the shame that sin has brought upon your life. Do you think that the story is over? Christ has taken all of your shame. He's taken all of your guilt. There is no fear for those who are in Christ. And what does Jesus do? He offers them a new cup. He drinks that cup and He offers them this cup. He sits with His disciples and He takes a cup of wine and He passes it to them. Take the cup from the hand of the Lord. You must drink it. Oh, that takes on a whole new meaning now, doesn't it? This is a cup of God's grace. The blood of Christ was poured so that you don't have to drink that cup. And now we get to drink this cup. This is a cup that is offered to those who are far from God. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Run to Him. Flee to Him. Know that He has taken all of your shame and all of your guilt. There is no judgment left for those who are in Christ. Come to Him and receive the cup of His blessing. Drink of this relationship. Know that you are in covenant with God. He has reconciled you with Himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this, for this cup that has been drunk by Jesus Christ. We thank You for the, the, the reality of that story that there is nothing left for us to drink. And we are offered a new cup, the cup of Your grace. God, we pray that as we have new hearts, that we will come to You with our whole heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.